How about the woman with the blood disease? Jesus came to Capernaum where she was at. She heard he was there, realized there was something special about Jesus Christ. She fought her way through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. Jesus Christ turned around and said, Who touched me? He was surrounded by all kinds of people, and the disciples said, Hey, what do you mean who touched you? Hundreds of people were touching you. He says, No, somebody took the power out of me. You know, when she went into that crowd, she wasn't just looking to touch somebody famous. She was wanting to touch Jesus Christ because she needed to have her story changed. She wanted Jesus Christ to heal her. How about Lazarus and his sisters coming to Jesus Christ, saying, Our brother's sick. Well, he delayed his trip there, and Lazarus died. He got there, and the sisters felt like, well, it's just too late because he even stinks. Well, Jesus Christ rose Lazarus from the grave. Lazarus had life because Jesus Christ changed his story. I know many of you in this room today, you can sit here and say, listen, Jesus Christ changed my story, changed my life. Jesus Christ died upon that cross, and he changed everything. Jesus Christ changed the world for eternity. God can change the story of your life. He can change the story of your family's life. He can change the story of those that you know and those you're, that you're friends. Jesus Christ can change the story of America. Jesus Christ can change the story of the church. Jesus Christ can change the story of this church. It's all about you and I being used as a change agent. The question for you and I today, the question for you and I going through this next year is, am I willing to be used by Jesus Christ to change this story. I want to be used. I want God to use me to touch somebody just like maybe in this story here. Listen very carefully. You have people in your life right now that need a touch from Jesus Christ. You know why you're in their life? To touch them with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, before you were formed in your mother's womb, set you apart to touch that person's life, to touch this world for his glory. You know, we've talked about our church here a little bit and I'm so excited about what God's doing here. I am optimistic about Beaverdam Baptist Church. I really am. I want you to know, though, it's not because we got a new president. It's not because we have a, the, right, the right political group controlling the Congress or even the right Supreme Court. I'm not even excited about our church because of what happened in 1776 at Continental, I'm sorry, Constitutional Hall in Philadelphia. I'm not. Those are fine things, maybe. I'm excited about what's going to happen to our church. I'm optimistic about the future of our church because of what Jesus Christ said of Philippi, Caesarea, in 33 A.D. It was towards the end of Jesus Christ's ministry. He took his apostles to Caesarea Philippi, which is about 30 miles north of Galilee. This was probably the most pagan city in Judea at that time. It was a Roman city, and it was filled with pagans and all kinds of false worshiping of gods. It was a horrendous place. Well, why did Jesus Christ take them there? He wanted them to see what the world is going to look like. He wanted them to see. And so he sat his apostles down in the middle of Caesarea Philippi, and he said, Who do people say that I am? Well, they all kind of had guesses. Some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Jeremiah. Some think you're Elijah. Some think you're prophets. Jesus Christ said, okay, okay, who do you think that I am? Remember old Peter? Peter got it right. He says, you're Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus realized, Peter, finally you got it right. And he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell 
will not prevail against it. Listen very carefully. Jesus Christ is the one who builds his church. It is. It's not your pastor, no matter how great you think he is. I'm just kidding. It's not your deacons, and they are great. It's not your Sunday school teachers, and they're fabulous. It's Jesus Christ that builds his church. Do you know what he uses to build his church? You and I. Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, comes down on you and I, and we get transformed. But we also get used in a powerful way to make an impact on this world and invite people to church and encourage people to get involved in their faith. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. That's why I'm optimistic. Jesus Christ has not left this church. Jesus Christ has not left you. We may have strayed a little bit from him sometimes. We may not be exactly where God wants us to be and where we need to be with Jesus Christ. But you know what? Jesus Christ is still there. You know what? Over these years that we've all been part of this church, we've seen God be glorified in many ways. Just recently, a team went down to Haiti. We just recently sent a group of our students down to the beach there to go to the Youth Evangelism Conference. And God did a marvelous work in their things. You're having marvelous experiences in the Sunday school classes and in your life, and you're seeing God show up in great ways. God is still at work. But listen very carefully. He wants so much more. He wants you and I to do so much more. I've shared with you since I came to this church 15 years ago that I believe with all my heart that God might use this church to send a revival that changes this nation. Is that impossible? No. It's impossible in our power, but not with God. When we get to a point when we're sold out and we desire to use our lives to change somebody else's life, you know what's going to happen? God's going to show up. Lives are changed. They've already been changed. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard as pastor how you've reached out to somebody, invited them to church, they get saved and it changed their lives. Or you come and tell me, Pastor, I'm inviting these folks this Sunday and they're kind of having troubles in their marriage. Would you pray for them? Absolutely. That same person comes back to me and says, Hey, it's amazing. They're coming to our church pretty regularly now. And you know what? God's changing their marriage. God's changing their life. I have a friend right now that's going through a hard time. Pastor, you know, can you pray for them? I got my Sunday school class praying for them. God has changed their life. God has done something in their life and changed it radically. It's all about God. I'm not naive. You're not naive either. You know, we live in kind of interesting times, don't we? The culture and the skepticism and the antagonism that's being forced against the church. A lot of people don't want God anywhere. They're trying to move God out of the the, uh, public square, out of the schools, out of the courtrooms. They don't want God there. You know why? Because Jesus Christ represents air in their heart and mind. When they think about Jesus Christ, you know what they think? Well, I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I don't need anybody judging my life. That's the way they look at Jesus Christ. They don't realize that God's going to give them freedom through Jesus Christ. They can have this brand new life. They think it's all all about them. It's all about not changing their ways. I'm going to have to give up too many things I like doing if I accept Jesus Christ. That's not what it's all about anyway. It's about having this relationship with God. Who can have a relationship with God outside Jesus Christ? The answer is nobody. Nobody can. No matter what the world would say out there and the universalism that all gods are the same, there's only one God that has a son named Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully. There's only one living God, too. His name's Jehovah, okay? He's the father of Jesus Christ. As bad as we think things might be out there, as horrible as we think things might be as far as what's going on in society, it was no different when the first church was here, the early church. What were they doing to Christians then? They were killing them. We don't want to hear that stuff. Get out of here. That environment was no different than ours right now. Ours has a little bit better communication ability probably with the Internet and the TV and all these things there and all kinds of rules and regulations. But you know what? 
They didn't like Christ then. Listen very carefully. The world has not liked Christ since he came to earth 2,000 years ago. They've fought against Jesus Christ since then. What does that mean to you and I today, though? It means if we're going to reach this world for Jesus Christ, we need to get even more serious about doing it. We need to even get more focused about doing that and share what we have, let people know about that. Why did the early church explode? And as we read that, those guys, 12 guys went out and changed this world. There was a number of other little disciples that went with them. But it was a very small group of people. Listen very carefully. Less than the number of people in this room right now that went out and changed the world for eternity. Why did they do it? If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me, if you will, to Acts 1, verse 8. This is the very last thing that Jesus Christ said while he was on this earth. The very last thing. And you know as well as I do, somebody's last words before they say goodbye and not going to be back for a while. They usually make sure that they're very important. Acts 1.8 says this. If you have your Bibles open this morning, stand with me. If you will, we're going to read one verse here. Acts 1.8. It says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. Let me read that again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, to Judea, and Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. May God bless the reading of his holy words. You may be seated. How do you and I change the story? I can tell you very specifically here, it's, we need to surrender and we need to walk in obedience. What does surrender mean? It means, Jesus Christ, it's all yours. I'm giving everything I have to you. Why? Because you gave me everything that I have. It all belongs to you anyway. God, I'm giving it back to you. Every single thing that I have belongs to God. I'm going to look at six specific callings here in just a second. But before I do that, I want you to hear this. I know we're all excited about the Super Bowl this year, especially you ladies. But Bill Belichick said this, and I love this thought. He says, players win games, but teams win championships. You hear that? Players win games, but teams win championships. Yeah, there's a Patriots fan back there. (laughs) Players win games, and teams win championships. I want you to know the significance of that is huge for a church. It takes all of us. It takes all of us working together in unity and being filled with the Holy Spirit and walking together out in the fields here, making a difference for Jesus Christ. Every one of us has specific gifts. Every one of us has a very specific purpose that God gave you before you were born. What is my purpose? What is your purpose? Have we thought about that? Have we really focused and said, God, I want to find my purpose? Pastor, how can I find my purpose? I'll be happy to talk to you. So will all the pastors. So we'll sit down and talk to you. We don't know what that is, but we can help you discern it, help you figure it out. I can give you one little step of guidance right at the moment. What is your gift? Next time they have a need for something in the church, you say, well, I don't know if I can do that, but I'm going to try it. Maybe you'll find out that's your gift, or maybe not. We've had this before, too. Maybe it's not your gift. You know, I, I can't work with kids. I had a precious lady that's part of our church, still didn't come a whole lot because of a situation in her life. But she said, I don't like working with kids. I don't like working with kids. I for years and years. And finally she says, okay. You're up there saying every week, Pastor, you need people and children. I'll go do it. She loved working with kids. Unbelievable. For, I mean, it had to be two or three years. She told me, Pastor, I'll do anything else, but I can't work with kids. You know, the interesting thing about her, she had about four or five kids herself. Maybe that's why she can't work with kids now. It's a matter of finding out what we're supposed to do. 
You know, it's amazing here, thinking about the book of Acts, too. In the last 15 years since Amy and I have been here, we've seen more pictures that resemble the book of Acts from this church body than we ever had in our whole life. Over and over and over again. We've been on mission trips. You've been on mission trips. You've come back and shared stories. You know what that looks like? It looks like the book of Acts to me. Look at that. People in this church right now today in 2015 or 2010 or 2009 or 2017, they're living the book of Acts. Exactly what the early disciples and early apostles did in the book of Acts and how Jesus Christ laid out what the church is supposed to be about. Showed them that. Six different special callings. I want you to look at these things here up on the screen. I'm going to go through them one at a time. The first calling is called to proclaim the gospel. Acts 1.8 says this, You should receive power, but then you should be my witnesses. What does that mean? A lot of us think, well, I just, I'm not really an evangelist, and you know, I don't really know how to share my faith. You know what it's all about? It's about telling people what you've seen and what you've heard. Just like if you're driving down the highway and you witness an accident, pull over. Got a couple of police officers in our room here. They love to have good witnesses because it helps them understand what happened, especially when there's a dispute between two drivers. He did it, she did it, he did it, she did it. Well, you were a witness. What happened? Well, let me tell you what happened. A good witness is incredible. Think about this. A good witness for Jesus Christ is even more incredible. I used to be like this, but God changed my life, and now I'm like this. Oh, really? You used to be like that? Yeah. I don't want to really talk about that, but I want to tell you how I found Jesus Christ and what he's done since I found him. I want to be a good witness. I want to be a witness that makes a difference in other people's lives because why? First of all, because of my story, but also because of the way I live my life. They realize that. My very, very good friend, Linda Brooks, is back here. And I want to tell you, her husband didn't always live for the Lord. In fact, he probably had a reputation of not living for the Lord. But he was a precious, precious man. He was a man's man. People loved him. But he wasn't there. He wouldn't come to church. But he got saved one Friday night at a Promise Keepers conference. Life was radically changed. He was never the same again. He began witnessing. People kept saying, man, he's different. There's something different. His name was Gene Brooks. He's in heaven today. There's something different about this man. I don't understand it. Listen very carefully. We did his funeral a number of years ago. Nine, I'll never forget this, nine different people came up to me at the funeral and said, I want to be the next Gene Brooks. I want to be the next, just because of the way he lived. He invited him to church too. He was in church every week then. He wouldn't come to church before he got saved, but he was in church every week. Wouldn't miss it. God shows up in our life, listen, when we decide to be used of him. We decide we want to be used of him. When we become good witnesses. Calling number one is we're called to proclaim the gospel, to be witnesses. I've shared with you over and over my story. It's not mine, it's what I do in my life now is asking the waitress at restaurants, right when she's serving the food, hey, we're getting ready to pray for our meals. Is there something that we can pray for you about? Some of you have tried that as well. I want to tell you right now, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. It really is. Some people say, I don't know if I can do that. They've done it and said, Pastor, it's amazing. She told us this whole thing, or he told us this whole thing. God desires to show up everywhere we go. How awesome to walk into a restaurant and say, hey, we're getting ready to pray for our lunch right now and thank God for it. Is there something that we could pray for you about? Try it. See if God won't use you in a powerful way in a restaurant. 
I've had so many experiences. The restaurant couldn't be any busier. Waitress is going this way and that way as fast as she could. I stopped her for just a second. She wanted to find out if I need some more water or bread or whatever it might be. And I say, hey, we're getting ready to pray for our meal right now. Is there something we pray for you about? The whole world stops in her life right now. I mean, it's like slow motion. She's standing there. She can't believe she just asked that question. And I can't tell you how many times in the midst of an incredibly busy restaurant. I understand the busy restaurant. You know that. She'll stand there and tears start coming down her eyes and say, one of them told me one time I was with my daughter, Jillian. She said, I've been living in the wrong kind of relationship. I was raised differently and I need to get back. Just because somebody asked her in a restaurant if I can pray for you. They're not expecting it, but you know what? When you ask that question, you know what you do? You bring God into that restaurant right then. Everything stops in that waitress's life and your life. We're talking about talking to God. How can I talk to God for you today? People that aren't even Christians, I can kind of discern that after their answers come out or after they talk to me a little bit. You know what? They want to talk to God as well, or they want me to talk on behalf to God. There's so many ways. That's just one of them that you and I can become witnesses and do that story. I have a challenge for you in regards to proclaiming the gospel. I want you to pray about this year. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But, you know, did I lead somebody to the Lord in 2016? Whatever the answer is. But I want you to think right now, the challenge for us as a church, challenge for your pastor first. I'm praying for one a month. But I want to pray right at least one a month. But I'm praying right now for you that you'd say, hey, this year I want to lead my first person to the Lord. I want to lead a person to the Lord this year. I want to reach out to somebody I know, and I want God to use me to reach the Lord. Listen very carefully. It'll change your life. There'll never be a time in your life when you realize that you're more in the center of God's will when you do that. I'm sitting here talking to some person in my office or over lunch or in their living room. There'll never be a time in your life when you realize that, hey, God is here right now. God's using me right now in a great way. We're called to make disciples as well. I want you to understand that God has called you and I out to disciple other people. Herb Hodges, a friend of mine, but a, wrote probably the best definition of discipleship I've ever heard. He said a disciple is a world visionary, world impacting disciple maker. So the question for you and I as we look in the mirror, do I have a vision for the world? Am I willing to impact the world wherever God tells me to go? And am I making other disciples? I believe that last part's huge. If I'm not making other disciples, I don't know that I can be called a disciple. The two most common practices in a church today that lead that church to incredible growth but also health are these two things. First and foremost, it's encouraging Bible reading. Encouraging Bible reading. We started this year. I want to tell you back in January of 2010, first year that your pastor here really kind of pushed that and made a big deal about it and talked about it for maybe 30 days before he started it. <clears throat> and I want to tell you, a lot of our folks jumped into that. They said, I've never, and I challenged them, have you ever read all the way through the Bible? And a lot of people in the room could probably say no. Maybe the same thing today. I never have read through the whole Bible. Why not start this year and do it? One of the neatest things I saw that year, though, was a bunch of my men got engaged. A bunch of the men that were good friends. You know what they did? They held each other accountable. They began talking about it on the phone and on the Internet. They began reading it. They began calling me or texting me or talking to me and saying, hey, this is precious. Or a lot of times they'd call me with questions. I'd have to say, well, let me get back here. Let me check that out. Sometimes I've had the answers, but a lot of times they're, they're, they were getting deep in God's Word. Reading the Bible. God changed those men that year. I know them. They're still good friends of mine. I know their lives today. You know what happened that year? I think they kind of got excited about God's Word. 
And since then, it's just grown in more and more excitement. They're more excited today than about God's Word than they were yesterday. God will do a great work when you get serious about the Word. The second thing that encourages us in a church is that we encourage Bible study. The two greatest things we can do to get disciples ourselves but also become disciples is read God's Holy Word, draw close to God, and get involved in Bible study, whether it's Sunday school or a small group Bible study, the adult Bible fellowships, whatever it might be. Get engaged in that. The third calling is praying. We need to pray always. I've shared with you before that we've prayed a little and received a lot. We've prayed a little and received a lot. Can you imagine if we began praying a lot? Can you imagine if we all got even more serious than we are right now about praying God's Word, what God might do? I want you to know that there's never been a great movement of God without prayer. God responds to prayer. He wants to do it. In fact, He wants to do some of these things in our life more than we do. But He's waiting for us to ask. He's waiting for us to talk to Him. Ask, waiting to see if we're really serious about that. If we begin praying every day, God, deliver me here. God, show me these things. It reinforces our testimony. It reinforces our faith. How badly do you and I want a great movement in our lives, in our church, in our nation? I want you to consider this right now. You know, we're all familiar with the seasons of the year, kind of going through, I don't know what you call this, our spring, fall, winter season, and now all the different temperatures. But uh, we also go through seasons of life. And I want you to ponder for just a second seasons of a church. And we'll line those up with the seasons of the year. A season of winter time is a time when things, a lot of things lie dormant. A lot of things might even die in the winter time as the weather and things. But I believe a winter time in a church is a time to prepare, to pray and prepare for greater things by God. And I think because, and we've talked about this a lot of times, there's a lot less activities typically in the winter time because people slow down and they don't do the sports and all the different things. So it's time, what a perfect time for you and I to truly prepare our hearts, but also truly prepare with prayer. Spend more time and get disciplined in our prayer time. Maybe develop a prayer journal. In the springtime in a church is a time of planning, a time of new life, a time of growing in our faith. Summertime as well is a time of growing and maturing in our faith. And we see fall time is a time of harvest and things. So we can recognize, and our church has been through these seasons several times before. We've seen God do great things through the seasons. We've seen God do great things in these different seasons too as we prepared our heart or got ourselves ready or growing together. I believe right now with all my heart that our church has just recently, this last month and a half here, turned the corner. Seeing all kinds of new folks coming to our church, excited about God and bringing their precious hearts into, into, into worship. I'd stand in the back now during the worship time just to enjoy you all singing and me singing as well. Seeing the hands in the air, seeing the excitement as you praise God and watching our praise band here. Plus, I keep the sound guys straight. Not really. They keep me straight. Calling number four, to serve sacrificially. You cannot serve God without sacrificing. You know, this is a little algebraic equation. You cannot serve God without sacrificing. If you're not sacrificing, the question might be if you're truly serving. Is my service really a sacrifice in my life? Or is it just leftovers? Am I just giving kind of leftovers in my life to the church? God is calling you and I out. God's calling you and I out to be His body believers here in Beaverdam that make a difference, that change the story in this community first, and we have. There's so many things this church has done over the years that's put this church on the map. First of all, that's a church that helps people. That's a church that came and knocked on my door one year, invited me to church. That's that church that helps me in the thrift store or the food bank. 
<laughs> That's that church that makes a difference. The greatest story, I think, in the Bible of procrastination, I think we all do it from time to time. We can all say, well, maybe I'll get to that one of these days. The greatest story, I believe, is found in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 8. It's a story when Moses had gone back to Egypt as we're confronting Pharaoh with the, the, with the ten plagues. This was a second plague. He told Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, God's people go, we're going to send frogs like you've never seen before. We're going to smother Egypt in frogs. Pharaoh said, I'm not letting your people go. I think he probably doubted it. Well, God sent the frogs. More frogs than anybody ever seen. I mean, they were lined up and stacked up everywhere he went, all over the halls of his palace there, everywhere, frogs everywhere. So he summoned, Pharaoh summoned Moses to come back. Moses, okay, I'll let your people go. Just please take away the frogs. And Moses said, okay. One condition. When are you going to let my people go? You know what Pharaoh said? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Are you kidding me? I want the frogs gone today. But he said tomorrow. And unfortunately, many times we have opportunities to serve or we think about these things. We say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. Americans, unfortunately, today live in kind of the attitude of second chances. You know, I'll get back to it today. Your pastor has deep conviction in his heart right now. When my kids were growing up, how many times I said, not right now, son. Not right now, daughter. I'll get, I'll get with you later. Maybe we'll do it tomorrow. Are you kidding me? And I missed tomorrow too many times. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. In your bulletin, you don't need to turn there right now. But we're going to start having a section there that talks about opportunities to serve. It's in your bulletin this morning. <clears throat> My leadership team and I are going to discern some of these things and figure out where the greatest needs are here. And I can tell you right now, for the most part, the greatest needs in our church right now as far as serving are being a greeter and working the children's church. I want to talk about the greeters for a second. We'd like to have 11 greeters out front here. My heart's been, and we've had it before, we just don't have it currently, We've had it before where I just assume somebody comes to our church, you come to our church, you get touched four times coming in, either a greeting or a handshake or a hug, whatever it might be. Before you get inside the building here, you've had that many people welcoming you. God has always said this is a friendly church. You know what that says? We want friendly people that would work assigned positions once a month out front of our church and say, hey, we're so glad you're here today. My name is Gary Stewart, and this is my wife, Amy Stewart. What's your name? And then write the names down maybe so you remember next week. Think about this for a second. And I shared this with some of our leaders. Imagine if somebody comes and visits our church today and it's the first time here. They meet a bunch of people. You get to know their names. They come back next week. I always try, when I meet the people, I always try to remember their names. And God's given me the ability to do it or, or the system to do it. Imagine that person comes back second time next week. And there's four or five different people that call them out. Hey, George and Sue, great to have you here. Pete and Sally, great to have you guys here. Man, can you imagine how they feel? Man, we feel so welcome here at this church. You know, we've never been to a church before where four or five different people knew my name. It's not that hard to do. But greeters are huge. Listen very carefully. Somebody coming to our church for the first time, you know what that means to them by greeted, being greeted in the parking lot? Brother Stosh, I thank God for him because he stands out there. You see him many Sundays out there waving at people when they come in. We have a little sign. If you're brand new today, stop because we have places to park right up front. So he tells them where to go. Tells them to 
Stop up there. The children's ministry. We are desperately short in children's ministry. I'd say on our best day downhill, we might have the place about two-thirds full with workers. We need help. Calling number five, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. But Jesus Christ told the apostles, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They were different men after they received that power. Many of us have been to Calvary, i.e. we understand our salvation, we understand that we have been saved, but we haven't been to Pentecost yet. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that we have not unleashed the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have not come to a point where we said, God, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be used of you, God, to do amazing, impossible things because of your power. The greatest need in the church today, every church, Church Universal, but also Beaverdam Baptist Church, is the power of God. That's the greatest thing any church needs. What happens when we see the power of God? Our lives are transformed yet again. Our lives are changed. We're using a great way to touch people for glory of God. We need an unprecedented movement of the power of God. Not just in our church, but every church across the nation. We need to pray for our church, but also I think it's a good idea to pray for all the churches you pass on the way in when you drive in here. Pray for that church. Sorry, guys. My fault. It's time. Listen very carefully. You all have a purpose, but it's a time for our purpose to collide with God's power. That I have this purpose. I believe, God, that you want me to be used of you to do this or do that or serve here or serve there. But, God, I want your power. I want your Holy power. I want to share this very quickly. What happens many times when we have the Holy Power is we quench it. What does that mean? It means sometimes because of our life, we kind of put a big wet blanket on the Holy Spirit. We get all excited about God, but we put this big wet blanket on top of the Holy Spirit. So we're not operating the Holy Spirit because what? We've quenched it. We pour in a big bucket of water on top of the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that happen? I'll tell you a couple of things very quickly. Having a critical heart. It's hard not to have a critical heart today because we live in tough times. It's hard not to be critical sometimes about people because people sometimes can be kind of crazy or kind of confused and so they kind of rub us the wrong way. You know, sometimes I've met people that seem to have a, an ambition but also a special calling to find fault. You know people like that in your life? They seem to like find fault. We need to live in the essence of grace-giving. God gave me grace. He gave you grace. We should give grace to other people. Sometimes we live with kind of a divisive spirit because of something going on in my life. Maybe it's pain or maybe it's sadness or maybe it's frustration or maybe it's uh, the unknown. I'm not sure what's going on. But living with a divisive spirit is the opposite of unity. We need to live with a controlled tongue as well. I've told the guys for decades now in Bible study, men's Bible studies, the easiest way for you and I to look godly, keep our mouth shut. I learned that as a husband years ago. You know, I don't need to say everything that comes into my mind. None of us do. How about an uncooperative attitude with God? Okay, God, I hear you saying that, but that's not for me or that's not my calling, whatever it might be. How do we live in the power of the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us in Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the good and perfect acceptable will of God. Finally, number six, call to live in unity. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed that night before he was crucified. Unity is the foundation of revival. 
We won't, there's a number of things we need to do to see revival in church, but we'll never see revival unless we're unified. We all have one accord. We all have one spirit here. We're never going to be totally joined at the hip with each other, but we can be on the same page. How is that early church on the same page? Because they focused on the things that were most important. They realized that Jesus Christ was real, and I'm all about him. You know, all this other stuff's peripheral. Think about this for just a second. Last time you had a major crisis in your life, I mean a major, major crisis. Somebody is ill and in the hospital. Somebody is going through some incredibly hard time that you love. And my whole focus right now is on that person, that situation. All the other little stuff, you know what happens? It just pales away. Think about that. The classic illustration that many people use, remember what was happening the day before September 11, 2001? Maybe you've heard that question before. Maybe you do remember because somebody told you, but most of us can't remember what was in the news headlines the day before. Why? Because we had a focus. Oh, my gosh, they've bombed America. We've had Pearl Harbor II in the World Trade Centers in the Pentagon. When we set our affections on God, you know what? Everything else pales. It really does. The first century church exploded. I want to conclude with these several thoughts. You ever pondered your regrets? I've shared with you before that Amy asked that several years ago of me. I think I've told you before, but my two biggest regrets in my life were putting on all this weight. And I didn't used to be big. I had a before me picture too. But also I had a regret that I didn't spend more time with my children growing up. Here they got old enough to go to college. And when my first daughter went to college, I had kind of my little momentary life crisis for about 30 days. And thought, oh my God, how did it go so fast? I know that you, you parents that have kids that are growing and grown too realize that how fast it goes. And then seeing the rest of my kids falling and getting married and all these things too, how fast it goes. I don't want to get to the end of my life and live with regrets. Let me tell you what regrets will not be, though. Regrets will not be things that you did and wish you hadn't done. They won't be. You won't remember those things, I wish I'd done them and didn't do them. Regrets will be the things that you wish you had done and didn't do them. Okay? It's not the things you did and wish you hadn't. It's the things that you wish you'd done and didn't do. Regrets may be, unfortunately, hope not, Opportunities missed. I want to share with you this year, as we move forward, we have an incredible opportunity to change this world. We really do, to be change agents. We have an opportunity to, to realize new things in God, to grow in our own life and to, to expend ourselves and discipline ourselves and to be involved greater with God's Word and Bible study and church and serving and these sort of things. You see those six things up there on the screen. And I want you to think about this for just a second. I'm going to ask you to stand here in a minute. I'm going to ask you right now, of those six things out there, what do you think would be the most important thing to focus on as a church? It can be different people standing for different things. But as you look at those things, proclaim the gospel, make disciples, pray always, serve sacrificially, live in the power of the Holy Spirit or live in unity. Which one of those things do you think would be the number one? All of them are important. We need to focus on all of them. But if you were to decide today, you personally might be different from your, your wife or your husband. Whatever you think personally would be the most important thing for us, us as a church to put as number one this next year, focusing on that, what would it be? 
I'm going to ask you if you think proclaiming the gospel would be number one. Would you stand? Anybody thinks that's the most important? All right. Thank you. Next one, make disciples. I think that's the most important thing for a church to focus in. Number one on the list. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The next thing is pray always. Prayer. Pray always. Very good. Thank you. You may be seated. Next thing is to serve sacrificially. Thank you. Very good. Next thing is to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Next, to live in unity. Very good. Thank you. You may be seated. So I said every one of them is very important. Very, very important. Leadership today, yesterday, kind of, we had a big leadership meeting and decided three top things they felt was unity, discipleship, and to serve. They, they, they realized everything's important. They felt like these might be the good first things to, to focus in on, those things, unity, discipleship, and to serve. Hey, concluding this morning, what if you were just one decision away from your life completely changing, your life completely being different, just one decision away from making that decision and realizing I got a completely different life today because I made that one decision that one day. Doesn't have to be today. Someday in the future here, hopefully. But what would that one decision be? What would your one decision be? I wanted to give you something today to talk about over lunch so you can discuss that with your mate, with your friends. What would be that decision in your life that you'd make today that would change your life yet again for glory? Life is very, very precious. Changing the story is precious. I don't want to ever stop being grateful to God. I know you're grateful as well. But life is so precious. 